So um, I'm really thankful that um, I'm able to speak today. Scott is out of town and Roy is out of town and they've asked me to fill in. And so I think uh, Mikhail was tired. I'm not sure what, but <laughs> thanks, Mikhail. Thanks for the message last week and thanks for giving me a shot here. And uh, really excited about the text. You might want to open your Bibles to uh, James chapter 5. We're going to have it up on the screen here in a little bit. Um, and we'll, and I'll have the, the text up there, but there's some other verses we'll look at, so it might be handy if you have your Bibles open. But first I want to share a song with you, and this song is called Covenant of Love. How many have heard or sung this song before? Go ahead and raise your hand. All right, that's great. Okay, so we got one. That's great. Nancy and I are going to sing this with you. Uh, but it's, a, it's an easy tune to pick up, and, and the reason I want to sing this song is because of the message, and it's going to connect uh, also to the book of James. So here's how the tune goes, real simple. Oh Lord God of Israel, there's no God like you in heaven or earth below. Oh Lord God of Israel, there's no God like you in heaven above. Repeat. Oh Lord God of Israel, there's no God like you in heaven or earth below. Oh Lord God of Israel, there's no God like you in heaven above. You keep your covenant of love, your covenant of love. Oh God, there is no God like you in heaven above. You keep your covenant of love, your covenant of love. Oh Lord, there is no God like you in heaven above. Well, how'd you like it? It's good? All right. All right. Now you're going to clap for yourselves because we're going to sing it again, okay? Here we go. Jump in if you can. Oh, Lord God of Israel, there's no God like you in heaven or earth below. Oh, Lord God of Israel, there's no God like you in heaven above. Oh, Lord God of Israel, there's no God like you in heaven or earth below. Oh, Lord God of Israel, there's no God like you in heaven above. You keep your covenant of love, your covenant of love. Oh, God, there is no God like you in heaven above. You keep your covenant of love, your covenant of love. Oh, Lord, there is no God like you in heaven above. There is no God like Jehovah God. Jehovah gave his promise and his covenant to Abraham. It's recorded in Genesis chapter 12. 
He said, Abraham, I want you to leave your land, and I want you to go a land, to a land I will show you. And I'm going to make three promises to you. I promise to you to make a great nation out of you. I know you have no children. I know you're 75 years old. Abraham, you're going to become a great nation. Your children will be more than the sands on the shore of the sea. Your children will be more than the stars that you look, look up into the heaven and see at night. And in addition to that, Abraham, I'm going to give your children a land. It'll be a land all of their own. And part three of this promise, Abraham, is I'm going to bless every family on the earth through you because of your faith. That third part is what we just sang. The covenant of love is God's covenant of love to all the families of the earth through Abraham given to him in Genesis chapter 12. All of us are recipients of the blessing of Abraham's faith by our faith in Jesus Christ and that covenant of love that God establishes with us through faith. And because Abraham was a person of faith, God said, everyone who is like Abraham, remember in Galatians, Romans, I believe, he says, not all Israel, not, not just because you were born in Israel, makes you an Israelite. Those who have faith of Abraham are true Israelites. So those of us who actually are Gentiles have been grafted in, Not by blood, but by faith. And so there's a new Israel. And the new Israel are those people who have faith from all nations, which we represent. We are are those who are blessed by this covenant of love. So when we get into the book of James, James is a a little bit angled towards those who are of Jewish origin. Because in James chapter 1... James, the servant of God, verse 1, of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes in the dispersion. The Jews had been dispersed many times throughout their history. As a matter of fact, the deliverance from Egypt was in some ways a dispersion. They were living in a land. They were taken out of it. They went to Egypt. They became slaves in Egypt, and God was bringing them out of Egypt back to their land 400-something years or more later. Uh, And so he was delivering them after they had been taken out of their land. But later, in about 700 years before Christ, uh, the Assyrians uh, captured uh, Judah. Actually, the Babylonians captured Judah. The Assyrians captured Israel. And the Babylonians took uh, Judah out of their homeland in three different raids on Jerusalem and, and Judea and took them off into Babylonia. And they were actually taken away from their homes, their farms, their inheritances. Everything was taken. They lost everything and they were displaced. They were dispersed. So when James writes his book, he writes it to people who know in their history what it means to be uprooted from their homes and lose everything. And there's a great amount of suffering that they could recall. And even when the church started, you'll remember in Acts 2, there was a great deal of receptivity at the beginning. 3,000 were immersed into Christ and born again the first day. But soon after that, a persecution arose. And in chapter 8, everybody except for the apostles were dispersed from Jerusalem and went and scattered about. And I don't, I don't know what kind of things you're going through in your life, but I've never gone through anything like that. 
Have you ever gone through that type of suffering and oppression where you were uh, forced from your home, left everything behind, and all you had were the clothes on your back and a few things you could carry, and you lost everything and you had to go somewhere else and start over again? We haven't faced that kind of suffering. And yet those are the kinds of things that the people were facing when James wrote his book. I write to the 12 tribes of the dispersion. And they knew what it meant to be uprooted and to lose everything and to not know what their future would hold for them. In the same way, today, there are populations of Christians being dispersed around the world. I keep up by reading a little bit on a website called The Voice of the Martyrs. They also have a little publication they send out that we get uh, in Sudan. Christians who are trying to be Christians in Sudan are uprooted regularly, sometimes beheaded, sometimes killed in front of their children, their homes burned, their meeting places burned, and they're on the run. In northern Ethiopia, as we stand here today, that is happening there. Groups of Christians are being persecuted by Muslim extremist groups who are burning their church buildings, burning their homes, and sometimes killing them because of their faith. Uh, in the country of India right now, because of the radical leader that they have, uh, he has decided to make India a Hindu nation. And as much as possible, even though it's legal to be a Christian, as much as possible, get rid of Christianity. And so Hindus uh, in many cities and many villages are, are burning the homes of Christians, pushing Christians out of uh, their existence. They want to make it a Hindu nation. That's a reality for some of our brothers and sisters around the world. And so in a little bit, in in some ways I feel a, a little bit embarrassed when I compare my sufferings to the sufferings of the people that were the recipients of James' letter and some of the folks that are around the world suffering. And yet we still go through suffering. And in James 1, one of the verses that uh, astounds me, even to this moment as I read it to you, says, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. So think about the most recent trial that you've experienced, or maybe uh, the trial that you're going through right now. Okay, a couple of months ago, a couple of months ago, not, not even a couple of months ago, about maybe three or four weeks ago, uh, our air conditioner decided to quit producing cool air. And it was about 105, something like that. And I said, this is a bad beginning to the summer. Uh, to me, that was a severe trial. Uh, what are we going to do about that? How, how can we count it all joy? Well, we, we measured the different options we had. Uh, refill the gas, $500. Buy a new system, $8,000. We don't have $8,000. How about we do the 500 The technician says it'll, it might last a week. It might last a couple years. We'll see. Um, in the midst of that, count it all joy. What's to be joyful about that kind of trial or about any other kind of trial, about economic hard times, about about illnesses, about things that uh, that that we we want to be different, but they're not different. 
So our text for, for today is what does patience look like? How can we be patient and be steadfast in the midst of those types of situations? And, and really the text comes from James 5 verses 7 through 12, which says, Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and late rains. You also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you've seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. But above all, my brothers, do not swear, either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no be no, so that you may not fall under condemnation. And so what I would like to talk to you about is what does patience look like out of that verse? And I found three, uh, three things that I think are really good lessons for us to learn uh, that I want to share with you. But first of all, I want to help you understand the word patience. And as you know, the New Testament was written in Greek, mostly Greek, a few, few Aramaic phrases here and there, but mostly Greek. And so none of us, as far as I know, does anybody read Greek? Poncho, you don't read Greek? Okay. You got, okay. Uh, I, th- I thought you were going like that. We don't, we don't read Greek. And so we're all reading translations. And translations, uh, translation, translating is a little bit challenging because you're always looking for the right word to translate from one language to another meaning. And that always doesn't happen. If you're bilingual and speak Spanish and English or other two languages, you know that you don't, some words you prefer in one language and some words you prefer in another because they just, they just work better. And it's hard to translate some words. The word patience is a little bit like that from Greek. The Greeks actually use two words in the Bible. There's two Greek words in the Bible to translate patience. One is the word makrothumeo. Makrothumeo is actually composed of two words. Macro, you've heard of that with your computer terminology, which means something that's real long, a long string of characters or a long something. And thumeo, which means anger or passion or heat. And so macrothumeo is long heat or long passion or long anger. Macrothumeo means a person who has the quality of being long-suffering. In other words, in the midst of troubles and injuries and oppression, this person just keeps chilling out and trusting that God's got it under control. Macrothumeo is the idea of being able to go for a long time and, and in control of your emotions, being calm and confident without getting angry, even though you're under pressure, under oppression, you can go for a long time under that pressure without flaring up in anger. It's like having a long fuse. How many of you would prefer a short fuse on a stick of dynamite to a long fuse? Everybody wants to, wants to have a long fuse, Right. How many of you are married to someone who is not a macrothumeo? You don't answer right now, okay. <laughs> but you know there are people with short fuses. There was a time I was in McDonald's and 
uh, getting, which is probably uh, not the healthiest place to eat and wasn't getting the healthiest meal, but I was in a hurry. And so I was getting a meal and, you know, they shove them all out there. And so I, I got up close because the lady had shoved some bags out there and I grabbed, went to look at a bag to see if that was mine. And someone screamed at me, get your hands off of that. That's my bag. That was not macro to mayo. That person had a very short fuse. And you know people that have short fuses. Their anger flares up in a second. We're surrounded by people like that. And God says, when the pressure is on, my people have patience. They have macro thumeo. They have a long fuse. Love is not easily angered. And if you're easily angered, you need to do a self-evaluation and say, God, why am I easily angered? Take that away from me. The other word for patience in the New Testament is this one, upomone. Upomone is also made up of two words, upo, which means under. It's a prefix that means under. And mone means to abide or to remain. And so upomone means to remain under pressure for a long period of time and be able to bear up under that kind of a pressure, to bear up under burdens, time and burdens Combined, and, I, and a person can bear up under that. And it many times in the New Testament is translated steadfast or endurance, depending on the translation you're reading. And so macrothumeo, which is the word in our text at the beginning, when, when we're told here to have patience, be patient, therefore, brothers, in verse 7, until the coming of the Lord, is the word makrothumeo and is the, is the idea of keep your emotions under control. And, and don't flare up. Don't get angry. Keep that emotion under control. So let's work with that for a little bit. I put the, I put the website up there, blueletterbible.org. If you want to do these kind of word studies, it's all actually done for you on blueletterbible.org. You simply go in there and you, uh, you'll learn how to use it and it'll show you how to do those word studies. Well, let's go forward. So what does patience look like? Be patient, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth. I don't know about you, but I, I can find lots of signs that I'm not very patient in my lifestyle. Uh, speaking of fast food, I remember going through a fast food place one time and I was surprised by the sign that said, I think it said, if you don't receive your, your food in three minutes, your order is free. Something like that. That's amazing that you can go through a fast food place and put in your order and have your food delivered to you ready to eat within just a few minutes. It's astounding that we can do that. Uh, food preparation has gotten to where it's very quick in our culture, and we expect it uh, immediately and, and quickly. And there's a lot of things that we expect immediately and quickly, and that's why many times we prepare foods in a microwave. How many of you use the microwave every day in your house? And you know why you do that? Because you don't want to wait for your stove top to heat up and to heat it up in a different way. You want it fast and you want it now. I, uh, I became really disenamored with buying things for my bicycle. I ride my bike a lot to work in different places. And 
Uh, I would buy bike parts at Walmart, but because I guess they were getting a lot of their bike parts stolen, they put them behind a glass case. And for quite a while, if you would go to Walmart and want to buy a tube or any kind of bike part, it was a real, real uh, persistent endeavor to get someone to help you to open up the glass case so you could buy your bike tube. And so what ensued from that was, because of my impatience, I learned that if I just open up my computer, Amazon.com, click on the bike tube, it's at my house tomorrow and I don't have to wait on anybody. <laughs> and so we want things fast and easy. Information. A long time ago, we used to buy encyclopedias, or if you didn't have an encyclopedia, if you wanted information, you had to go to the library, make an appointment, look through some encyclopedias, and do your study and your thesis. Nowadays, you can have all the overload of information you want while I'm speaking this sermon on any subject you want. We want things fast. And yet God says, what does patience look like? It looks like a farmer who's waiting For the precious fruit of the earth. It's just the opposite of our character. Farmer wants the precious fruit of the earth. The farmer has to trust in God's process. Patience is a process. A farmer knows that growing corn starts in the early part of the year in the Midwest, where he prepares the soil in January and February and March, and then in April, He plants, he sows the seed, he waits for that seed to start germinating, become a seedling sometime in May, and then go through various stages until finally in September, the end of September, he has mature corn. If you or I want an ear of corn, what do we do? What do we expect? We expect to go down to Stater Brothers, Vaughn's, Ralph's. Find it and have it in our pot in our house within an hour. Farmer doesn't work like that. If a farmer is truly living off the fruit of the land, he's got a plan now for what he wants to eat in September. Patience is like that. Patience takes uh, uh, stages of growth, like the farmer waiting What does patience look like? Patience looks like a farmer waiting for the fruit to come, and uh, he will enjoy it over almost up to a year. When I first started speaking to you, I spoke out of chapter 1. And in chapter 1, verse 2, again, it says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. It produces patience. And patience, when it has its complete results, makes you perfect or mature. When we look at the second part of patience, after we see that it means trusting in God's process, patience leads to maturity. Maturity doesn't happen in a moment. When God makes you mature, it takes time, just like it takes time to make an ear of corn. It takes time to turn you into a mature person. But to become a mature person, you must go through trials. And so a lot of times we look at the trials as something that's negative. But really what God is doing is using the trials to do something very positive, 
make us mature and complete individuals. Patience is the trial that's happening, producing steadfastness. And in James 1 verse 4, the steadfastness, when it has its full effect, makes you perfect and complete, lacking nothing. That doesn't happen overnight. It's a process. Jesus, in Hebrews chapter 5 verse 8, it says that Jesus learned obedience by the things which he suffered. I don't know what we are suffering, what each one is suffering, what hardships you're going through, what unrealized dreams you have, what expectations you have. Lord, I've been faithful to you. Why is this happening to me? I don't know what's going on in your heart right now, but here's what can happen. If you look at that trial and you let it and you have faith in God over time and let God use that trial, he will produce steadfast in you, steadfastness in you, patience in you, and he will turn you into a mature person. Jesus learned obedience by the things which he suffered. Hebrews 5 verse 8. Paul said in Philippians 4, here's a verse we quote a lot because we want the victory. And a lot of times we don't realize the the context of what it takes to get what Paul had. But in Philippians 4.13, who can quote Philippians 4.13 for me? Okay, I can do anything. I can do all things that Christ who, through Christ who strengthens me. But I want you to look at verses 10, 11, and 12. Philippians 4, verse 10. I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. For you were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. The Philippians ran out of opportunity to share with Paul on the mission field. Well, what did he do when they didn't have opportunity? Notice what he says in the next verses. Not that I'm speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I have learned to be content. He learned to be content by doing without sometimes. He says, I know how to be brought low. I know how to abound in any and every circumstance. I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. When Paul first started preaching the gospel and he was preaching in Lystra and Derby and Iconium and they kicked him out, drug him out of the city, beat him up, left him for half dead. He learned. He learned how to be content under oppression. He learned how to rejoice in the Lord, even though he was being rejected. When he was on a ship and it was shipwrecked and he was out in the ocean all night long, floating on a piece of wood, he learned how to be joyful and happy in the Lord, even though he was all alone. And when he was on deserted places and and left for dead or uh, uh, on islands and bit by a, a viper or a snake and All of these different circumstances where he suffered shipwreck, where he suffered oppression or suffered persecution. He was learning to be content. He couldn't learn to be content without the trial. Because learning to be content is also a process. Learning to have patience is a process. And it's a process that God uses through suffering and through trial. So whatever it is we're going through, we pray for the instant answer. 
But maybe God is using the trial for something much greater. Maybe he's trying to build into us patience or character or contentment. God's use of patience is a process. What does patience look like? Notice this. You also, brothers, be patient. Establish your hearts, verse 8. What that means is set your mind. Your heart in the Bible is your mind. Set your mind on the Lord. Remember, the Lord's coming is at hand. Keep your mind set on the fact the Lord is coming. You know what happens when we get impatient because things are going wrong in our life? We start grumbling and blaming other people. But he says, hey, you don't grumble above against other people, verse 9. So that you may not be judged yourself. Behold, the Lord is the judge and he is at the door. A lot of times when we're going through trials, we're just like the people of Israel who got out in the middle of the desert and they didn't have food. They didn't have anything to drink. And what's the first thing they started? Who's the first person they started grumbling against? Their leaders. Moses, why did you bring us out here into this desert? We were just fine back in Egypt. Were they really just fine back in Egypt? No, they were enslaved. Were you really just fine back in your sinful life? No, you weren't. You were enslaved too to sin. But we get drawn out here where God is working on us and where God is building us. And when we go through a trial, our first thought is to start, well, if my wife wouldn't have done this, well, if that person wouldn't have done that, well, if this circumstance would have been different... Yeah, in view of all of that, but still God is sovereign and he could have avoided that from happening in your life, but he didn't. God let it happen in your life. And so God is letting the trial happen. So set your minds on the Lord, not on grumbling against people, not even on your situation. Just remember, God's coming. Jesus is coming back. He's the judge. You don't need to right all of the wrongs of the world. You just need to trust that Jesus is going to do it. Establish your hearts. Don't grumble against one another. Notice verse 12. Above all, brothers, do not swear, either by heaven or by earth or by any oath, but let your yes be yes and your no be no, so that you may know, so you may not fall under condemnation. One of the things that happens when people go through trials or they're in predicaments is they say, boy, when I get out of this, or Lord, if, I, if you just let me get out of this, I'm going to do that or the other. Or I swear this, or I promise that, or I make this oath about this. What are we really doing when we, when we do that? What we're really doing is trying to fix our predicament by our own ability and power and merits. If I can just create the biggest oath, if I can just promise the most fidelity, if I can just promise this, that, or the other... But really, we're focusing on ourselves and not embracing the fact that I just need to fix my mind and my heart on Jesus. In Hebrews chapter 12, a very parallel idea of what we're speaking about here in in James. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1. Actually, verse 3, uh, verse 2. Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross and despised the shame. He, for the joy set before him endured the cross and despised the, 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 uh, the shame. Verse 4, In your struggle against sin, you've not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. 
Yet you've forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons. Don't regard lightly the discipline of the Lord. The Lord uses trials to mold us and make us. What does patience look like? It looks like just waiting on the Lord, trusting in the Lord. I know it's uncomfortable. We've got this thing that we want. We've got that thing that's bothering us. But we trust the Lord. The Lord will resolve things when he comes again. In, in judgment, and he will certainly uh, be compassionate towards his people. And so set your minds on Jesus. Set your minds on the Lord. Don't grumble. Don't swear. Don't make promises uh, just because you're under pressure. Simply trust in the Lord and be faithful to the Lord. He will judge and he will sustain you. And finally, this third point that I want you to see is really, really important. Notice what he says in verse 10 of this text that we're looking at. What does patience look like? Remember, it's, it's about the process. God is working a process. Number two, it's about focusing on Jesus instead of grumbling and focusing on people around us or complaining about the leaders or complaining about the brethren or complaining about my family or about making oaths and boasts about what I'm going to do. And number three, what does patience look like? As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, look at the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remained steadfast. There's the word hupomoni. It's a synonym of macrothumos, but it's, it's, also, it's also a little bit different meaning of bearing up the burden. You've heard of the steadfastness of Job, the patience of Job. And you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. And this is perhaps the biggest point about the whole lesson. You remember Job was a very wealthy man. And he had thousands of sheep, I believe 7,000 sheep, and I think 3,000 camel and yokes of oxen. and He had all of these animals. He had seven sons and three daughters. Uh, he was married. And every day or every few days, his sons would have a, a gathering. And every few days when they would have their parties, uh, just to make sure that they had not offended the Lord, Job would go in after their parties and he would offer sacrifices for his sons and his daughters in case they had committed some wrong. So here was a godly man, a holy man, a righteous man. But there was a conversation that happened in heaven between God, the Creator, and Satan. And Satan basically said, the only reason Job believes in you and is faithful is to you is because you hold him up. You give him wealth. You give him family. You take all that away and Job will curse you. And God said, no, he won't. God said, he'll be faithful to me. So you have permission to touch everything Job has, but you may not take his life. And so Satan caused Job to lose his children his belongings, and the only thing basically that survived was Job's complaining wife who told him to curse God and die. Lost his health, full of scabs and sores all over his body, and the rest of the book of Job after chapter 2 or 3 is Job's friends trying to convince him why he must be guilty and why he should just admit his guilt and confess his guilt when Job really was a righteous man. If Job was thinking about it by himself, he might be like us and say, God, I've served you all these years. Why are you doing this to me? 
But Job's response was, the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. He just trusted in the Lord. In all of that, Job never knew about the celestial conversation that happened between God the Father and Satan. What I'm saying is this. I don't know why you have the trials you have. I cannot even come close to explain the the human suffering in the world today. But like Jesus, who was asked about, I believe it was a blind man. Why was this man born blind? Did he sin or did his parents sin? And Jesus' response was, he was born that way to show the glory of God. And somehow, in some way, with all of the suffering that happens, and particularly the suffering that's happening in your life right now, and the trials that you are going through right now, and the things that you would like to pray for and have victory over right now, Immediately, not like the farmer who waits seven or eight months for a crop. You want your answer now. And God hasn't given you your answer yet. God has just kind of told you like he's told the Apostle Paul, who pled about his thorn in the flesh. And God said, I'm going to leave it there. My grace is sufficient for you. And I think probably what God was saying is, I don't want you to boast I don't want you to boast in yourself. I don't want your ministry to be out of your power. I want your ministry to be out of my power. So I'm just going to leave that thorn right there, whatever the thorn was. And Paul just had to patiently endure it. What does patience look like? Here's what patience looks like. Patience looks like trusting in the Lord's purpose. You notice the scripture says, you have seen the purpose of the Lord. You see, patience is not about you. Patience... And what God allows you to go through is about God doing something through you. And maybe he hasn't even revealed to you all of the heavenly conversations that have gone on. In Ephesians chapter 3, we're told that the church is created and designed so that it might be a witness to the heavenly beings. 3, about verse 13. I might have it here for you. Let me go ahead and... Click through and get this. Ephesians 3, 7 through 12. I don't, I don't know what that looks like. I don't know what God is proving to the celestial beings through the design of the church. But he's doing something. So whatever God is doing in the heavenly places through the church, I'm glad for it. But he hasn't revealed to us all of that. In 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 10, when it's talking about how God created man first and made him the one who is responsible for his home and how his wife needs to uh, be submissive to his uh, being responsible and in authority in his home. It says, and, and, this, and this, she needs to show that submission and he needs to be responsible and, and carry that authority uh, in a godly way because of the angels. I have no idea what that means. But somehow God is using his design of the human family and a spiritual human family with a man that is strong in the Lord leading his family and a woman who is supporting his man so that God can teach something to the angels. There's, there's some celestial conversations that go on that God hasn't chosen to reveal to Job and he hasn't chosen to reveal to you and me. And yet, the scripture says, you have seen the purpose of of the Lord. You know what? In the end, in the end of the suffering that we go through, and here's what I want you to, to go away with God has your best interest 
at heart. God is compassionate and merciful. And he's working, he's working in you. He's working on you. But a lot of times we want God to answer all of our prayers. Remember in James chapter 4, why, why do you have all these wars and fights and quarrels among you? You don't have because you don't ask. And when you do ask, you ask for the wrong things. A lot of times we ask for things because we want comfort. And what I have found out is that God is much more interested in developing my character than he is about giving me comfort. Sometimes he'll let me be uncomfortable. Sometimes he'll let his apostle be out in the ocean, shipwrecked, floating on a piece of wood all night long. Sometimes he'll let his preacher be drug out of town and be stoned and left for dead. Sometimes he'll let Job lose everything and have a wife who tells him to curse God and die and have friends who said you must be guilty because he's building character. God's not all that interested all the time in your comfort. He's interested in your character. And that's how he teaches you and me to count it all joy when your AC goes out in Coachella Valley right when the summer starts. He's teaching you to trust and depend on him. He's more interested in your character than your comfort. What does patience look like? From James 5, 7 through 12. Patience looks like trusting in the Lord's process. It's not instantaneous. Yes, I know the scripture says, ask and you'll receive. But God is also working a process. And that process is like a farmer who plants in in March or April. He doesn't see the corn until the end of September or beginning of October. And some of that process, the farmer doesn't even control. He can't control the early rain. He can't control the late rain. And some of that process of growth, we can't control. But God's in control and God is in control and he's full of compassion and mercy. And what patience looks like is setting our minds on Jesus and not trying to right all the wrongs, not becoming a victim every time somebody oppresses us or does something against us. Just know that the Lord's at the door I've got to be the best I can be for the Lord right now as he molds my character and makes me a mature man. Trust the process and set your minds on Jesus and finally trust the Lord's purpose. It's not about my purpose. It's not about my comfort. It's not even about what I'm trying to do. It's about what the Lord is trying to do through me. That testing leads to patience, which leads to maturity, which leads to lacking nothing. And above all... The Lord is compassionate and merciful to those who love him. So this is the message today, and I just want you to to take that section of James and make it yours. Again, I don't know what you're going through. I know what I've gone through. And I know that sometimes, probably like you, I've gotten to the point where there was a great disappointment, where I said, look, God, I've done all of this for you. And how come you're letting this happen? Look at all I've done for you, Lord. Philip Rianzi wrote a book called Disappointment with God. All of the things I've done for you, God, I'm disappointed. How come you're not answering these prayers, giving me this, giving me that? Because God's not particularly interested in making us comfortable. He's really interested in changing our character and making us complete. So let's take the message and let's uh, let's ask the Lord to.
to really make us complete. I believe Steve has one more song, and then we'll have a final blessing just before we end. But thank you so much. May God bless you. May he give us patience.